This is Episode 7 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to Episode 7 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we sit down with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, who joined us on campus this past October for a roundtable discussion about Disarming Beauty, the second volume in our book series Catholic Ideas for a Secular World. In our conversation, we talked about his work at the New York Times, the influence of G.K. Chesterton on his own conversion, and the vocation of the Catholic journalist. Let's sit down with Ross for this week's conversation. Well, I'm joined this afternoon by Ross Douthat of the New York Times. Ross joined the New York Times as an op-ed columnist in April 2009. Previously, he was a senior editor at The Atlantic and a blogger for TheAtlantic.com. He is the author of Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, published in 2012, and Privilege, Harvard, and the Education of the Ruling Class, 2005, and a co-author with Raihan Salam of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream, in 2008. He is also the film critic for National Review. His column in The Times appears every Wednesday and Sunday. Ross, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Well, so the Center for Ethics and Culture here at Notre Dame explores the intersection of faith, primarily within the Catholic Catholic intellectual and moral tradition, and public life. Uh, we primarily do this within the contours of the academic context, and we strive to elevate discourse and scholarship to a level that considers the role of tradition and practice in the engagement of contemporary issues. Now, at the same time, our emphasis is not on applied ethics, as is often found at other university ethics centers, but ethics and culture, as we consider the way that tradition engages and informs the various means of communication, art, music, literature, etc., as well as politics and the law. So that's a bit about, you know, kind of where we come from. What I'm interested in asking you is, as a Catholic journalist, as someone who works in the media, who writes and analyzes and reflects on many of these same matters in the journalistic context, how might you describe the, the current scene uh, and, and your vocation and role in it? Well, the current – you mean the current media scene, would you say? Yeah. I mean the, the, the media scene is very strange these days. Um, it's, we are in an era of – in certain ways, intense media fragmentation. Um, you have a period where sort of traditional institutions, including my own, the New York Times, um, face all kinds of competitors online and otherwise that they didn't face before. And a lot of the sort of bulwark institutions of the press in the U.S., particularly, I would say, daily newspapers in mid-sized American cities, mm -hmm. have just been decimated um, by the Internet and the way it's changed the landscape of 
journalism as a commercial enterprise. Yeah. So journalism sort of exists on a very shaky and uncertain commercial foundation right now, which is useful, I think, for understanding the way media companies chase content and do stories and so on. And honestly, um, you know, a lot of conversation about the media sort of revolves around bias and to what extent does the press have a liberal bias and and so on. And then, you know, to what extent does Fox News have a conservative bias and, and round and round you go. And I think one thing that's useful for outsiders, people who consume media but don't practice it, if you will, non-practicing, um, is just to to sort of recognize that whenever they're engaging with media, they're engaging with reporters, columnists, editors, anchors, and so on, who are in a business that is in many ways much more precarious than the business was 20 or 30 years ago. And that a lot of what goes on in the media, the sort of, I mean, you know, up to and including the weird media frenzy around the candidacy of Donald Trump is partially explained by a business that exists in in instability in a way that it hasn't in sort of modern times to the same extent. Um, and that doesn't, you know, get to the question of sort of the ethical element exactly, but it tells you, well, it, it might tell you why the unethical element in journalism perhaps is a, temp- is a stronger temptation for the media now than it was 20 or 30 years ago in certain ways. Um, there's just a sort of deep uncertainty about what we're doing as an institution and where we're going, I, I think, that informs um, everybody's work in a sort of confusing kind of way. Well, what called you to engage in, in this, especially from you know your current platform at the New York Times of all places? Well, I mean, what called me was that I wanted somebody to pay me to write <laughs> for a living. I mean, you know, well, seriously, I mean, we, it's important to recognize that sort of you know, you're in life. You're looking for a vocation, and you're looking for a vocational element in work. Um, but work is also just work. It's a job. And those of us who are fortunate enough, or unfortunate enough, maybe, to work in jobs that involve, you know, a sort of a certain amount of intellectual noodling about, and so on, also need to recognize that you know we are we are practicing. A trade in the same way, in certain ways that, you know, a plumber practices a trade and an auto mechanic practices a trade and so on. You're doing something that you're performing a service that people want to want to um, pay for, um, hopefully. And again, in the media, current media landscape, maybe less so. But the service that we're performing is trying to explain and comment on, you know, all the crazy things happening in, in our politics. But I started out, you know, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I had, like many journalists, ambitions to be a novelist at some point, and those, you know, I have various unfinished <laughs> novels and short stories on my hard drive somewhere. Um, but what was sort of available as a profession was, you know, magazines and newspapers, and that's where I got my start. And then once you get that start, you sort of, you know, you can you can switch tracks, but right. once you're on that track, it sort of carries you forward. And so some of the things I write about are things I always knew I would be interested in, including um, religion, Catholicism, um, sort of moral and ethical questions. Some of the things I write about, particularly stuff to do with sort of everyday Washington, D.C. politics, are not things that I would have necessarily predicted, but they're sort of where the vocation has carried me. And the nature of being a columnist for the Times is such that you're trying, you know, you're trying to do two things at once. Um, you have a unique platform and a unique audience. You're writing for one of the most 
influential papers in the United States, writing for one of the most educated audiences in the United States. Um, And I'm doing it as someone who is a Catholic and some kind of political conservative. So my views are somewhat different from the average New York Times reader and the average Times columnist. So I feel like I do have, I have an opportunity and an obligation to try and sort of sort of both try and elevate the conversation and also sort of raise ideas and issues that I don't think necessarily get raised enough um, at the highest levels of journalism. So you're, there's that, which is clearly, that that's sort of the clear vocational element of what I do. But it yeah. coexists with the imperative to, you know, write something interesting twice a week that people want to read. You know, there's, and there's only, there's only so, you can only go so highbrow um, before you lose your readership, and I'm not really necessarily qualified to go too highbrow, um, but you and you also just you also don't want to sort of over over melodramatize your own position, right? I mean, you know, people will sort of sometimes treat newspaper columnists like public intellectuals, and maybe we could aspire to that. But we are newspaper columnists, and we write we write on a sort of passing scene, and you need to have a certain measure of humility about the work that you do. You're sort of providing a weekly service for people that the things you say will be dated and, you know, I mean, newspapers before they were digital ended up as birdcage liners <laughs> usually. And that's, you know, you need to recognize that, that in, the, in, the, in the landscape of ideas, you know, the life of the mind and so on, what you're doing is trying to inject a little more intellectual seriousness into an enterprise that does end up often as a birdcage liner. Well, I think of people like G.K. Chesterton, who did, you know, much the same that you're doing. I mean, he commented on all of the things of the day. And, and as some say, <laughs> there was never an unpublished thought. He did in, not, in yes. Yeah. No, and Chesterton, I think Chesterton represents, you know, if he were ever canonized, which he probably should not be, but were he, he would be the natural patron saint of journalists because he did what we do, right? I mean, yeah. he, he was a journalist, obviously, and he sort of, he raised journalism in many ways, to the highest theological level that you could that you could possibly raise it. Um, but he also had, you know, if you read Chesterton's works, as I have and do, I he was instrumental in my own conversion, and I love him to this day. But as a journalist, you can also see the places where you're like, okay, and he's on deadline here, and he has to write something. You know, he's he he's basically like a one man newspaper at various points in his career, yeah. and you, you can sort of see the difference between that kind of work and the work of the philosopher and the theologian where you have are given hopefully by wonderful institutions like this one more time and space and you know you can keep some thoughts unpublished um which is not um yes not a grace that's given to all of us who write for a living how do you perceive your work being received both by your direct peers uh, at the Times, as well as your readers, who who are your audience? Who is your audience? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I mean, I think you have many you have many overlapping audiences, right? You have, you know, in part you write for people in power because people in power do read the New York Times, and mm-hmm. so part of my audience is is theoretically not so much politicians, but people who work in policy and politics on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. And you are trying to, in a very small way influence how they think about what policies are possible and advisable and so on. So that's there's that audience that's sort of specific and elite and narrow. 
Um, there's the audience of your peers, which matters uh, mostly for vanity and professional advancement. But, you know, right. that, that does matter. And, uh, you know, there I do think it's, it's, you know, there are times when you need to sacrifice the respect of your peers in order to take an unpopular position. But sort of taking pride in sacrificing the respect of your peers is a mistake. And even though most of my peers don't agree with me necessarily on a lot of questions, I do think it's a good thing to try and earn their respect in terms of sort of, you know, you want to sort of display the seriousness of your thinking to some mm-hmm. extent um, to prove, because displaying the seriousness of your thinking is a first step towards getting people who disagree with you to take your ideas seriously. You want them to say, well, I disagree with him, but I can tell he's thinking seriously about this. And so this is true for my peers and also for the many, 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 many readers I write for who, you know, are sort of upper middle class American liberals, sort of secular-ish, who are don't share a lot of my basic epistemological commitments. Um, mm-hmm. You're writing, you're not writing to change their mind as the first step. You're writing to persuade them that you might, you know, that your ideas might be worth taking seriously. I think that's a more reasonable goal than trying to change their mind. And then I write for a small but hardy audience that, you know, mostly agrees with me. And, you know, and you want, sometimes you want to just be a champion for that audience um, and sort of try and elevate their ideas and defend them as vigorously as they can be defended if they deserve to be defended. So you're doing a lot of different things at once, I would say, from where I am. And hopefully I do them somewhat successfully. If you were to think about, you know, the that kind of segmented audience, is there anything you write that you might say is directed toward the the nuns? You know, the, the we talk about the, the rise of the nuns. The spiritual but not religious. Correct. Or the post. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, a certain amount of what I write. So I'll write stuff about sort of intra-Catholic debates, yeah. right, where you're writing, there you're writing, you're sort of trying to describe what's going on in the church, but you're also sort of writing for a Catholic audience and saying, okay, assume Catholicism is true, you know, which side should you take in this church controversy du jour, right? I, yeah. So I do a fair amount of that. But when I write about religion more generally, I am, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to make the case for Catholicism or Christianity because that isn't generally appropriate in a newspaper columnist, I think. You know, you're sort of trying, it's more that you're trying to describe the religious landscape in ways that might open people's minds to new or older possibilities that they've sort of discounted or rejected. Um, so I do, a, I do a lot of columns, not a lot, but a certain number of columns that are sort of describing the strengths and weaknesses of competing worldviews. You know, what does it mean? What are the different forms of post-Christianity? You know, what are their strengths and weaknesses? How do they map and mesh with the sort of historical weak points and strong points of Christianity and the Catholic faith. So I try and do, you know, and, and some of that can become too sort of disinterested where you're sort of not taking your own side sufficiently. And I think that's sometimes a danger for me in my position that you're sort of you're sort of performing even-handedness in a way in order to prove that you're even-handed in order to get a hearing, but you can do it to an extent where people don't even recognize that you're taking a position. So that, that can be a problem and a mistake. Um, but in general, I think there's sort of insufficient attention paid in the elite press to different, you know, to sort of theological ideas of all sorts, regardless of whether I agree with them or not. Um, and so I think there is real value in just sort of saying, well, let's take, 
let's try and tease out what you know. What are the bedrock theological assumptions of this political worldview, of this cultural worldview, and so on? Um, and I think that is, in part, addressed to people who are sort of post-Christian, post-Catholic, but still interested in religion and religious ideas, which I think is a big chunk of the Times' readership and that, that sort of nun category. It's people who are not rejecting religion in full, but just think they've moved beyond or outgrown Christianity somehow. Do you think some of that is a reaction to the scandals and things, you know, where it's the church It's a reaction to a lot of things, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think people... People drift away from institutional religion for all kinds of reasons. Um, I, I think that, you know, sort of, I think that often what will happen is that scandals and other events and so on will give people permission to do something that they already wanted to do. So you sort of, you know, it, it's rare. I mean, it happens. There are lots of famous conversion stories and deconversion stories, but it's sociologically rare that people are sort of, you know, mass every Sunday Catholics one month and then something happens and they just lose their faith. It's much more that you have people who are sort of weakly attached to different religious bodies for whom a scandal or, you know, a political controversy where they feel like the church is on the wrong side, like the same-sex marriage debate, where that right. that then becomes the reason to say, all right, I've sort of partially given this up, and now I'll just give this up completely. So religions lose at the edges, and then they gain at the edges too. So, you know, again, to the extent that I'm trying to sort of um, persuade people. The person I'm trying to persuade is not the hardened atheist, um, and it's probably not the person who's drifted fully away from Christianity or Catholicism, but it might be the person who sort of is draw is you know, feels some connection, some interest in institutional Christianity, has a lot of doubts and skepticism about it, is sort of amenable to making one small step one way or, or the other. And again, I think that's all you can hope to influence, really, as a writer, is, you know, it's very rare. You're not writing a column that converts the world. You're writing a column that plants a small seed in someone's mind that affects the choices they make 10 years later or something. And you, often you're not even doing that. But that's the, that's the aspiration, that's the, yeah, I think. That's the reasonable, limited aspiration for what um, people in my line of work and vocation do. What is it that you see the Catholic journalist having to offer the world? Well, the world, the Catholic journalist can offer a sense that, you know, the, that the everyday, everyday political controversies can be seen, you know, in the light of eternity. Um, I mean, it, it sounds sort of, you know, cliched or pretentious or something, but I mean, but that's, that's the reality. I think that's what Catholicism or any serious religious faith can bring. I mean, journalism is a, it's a secular profession for a lot of reasons, um, but part of it has to do with just sort of the nature of the journalistic project. It is an inherently skeptical field where you are going in and sort of, you know, you're, you're always looking for the real story under the official story. Mm. And that approach brought to religion lends itself, at the very least, to skepticism about institutional religion, but also um, just sort of, you know, religious claims generally. The journalist mm -hmm. is like, well, you know, these people say they believe in these supernatural, fantastical stories, but clearly there must be some, you know, harder, harder thing going on underneath. And I think the religious journalist both has the ability to sort of take religion 
as it should be taken seriously and say, no, you know, this this is these things that people really do believe these things. And there is not, you know, there is not always a sort of ulterior, vulgar Marxist materialist cause underneath. And in fact, the beliefs themselves need to be taken seriously because they are, and the beliefs themselves, not just people's um, self-interest is what changes and moves and shapes the world. Um, but then you can, to, also, to step even further back, the, the, the journalist can also sort of yeah, take seriously the, the idea that all of these, all of the often sordid and corrupt and chaotic stories that journalists write about are still happening as part of the theater of a world that has meaning and that, you know, that they're part of a larger story that someone is telling that is not just, you know, one, one damn thing after another. <laughs> um, so that's what you offer the world. Um, what you can offer the church is a certain kind of truth-telling that I think is, you know, sometimes sometimes can be taken to a fault, but but does does offer the church a kind of scrutiny that any institution with a hierarchical structure tends to avoid. So, you know, journalists, Catholic and otherwise, did the church a real service. They were sometimes unfair and sometimes wrong, but overall they did the church a real service when it came to the sex abuse crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, The church needed journalists to do what the bishops and archbishops and cardinals were not doing. Um, And I think that can be true in a lot of cases, that, you know, the, the... the church, the church needs it needs lay people generally. If it well, if the church is going to be governed as it has been governed, um, if we believe that the way it's governed is you know actually ordained by God, then part of the role of the laity in general, and certainly of the journalistic laity, is to sort of check you know the, the some of the problems that come in with um, with with a hierarchical um, mode. Um, in which, you know, you're, you're, you are supposed to believe that um, bishops are special and that the Pope is special and so on. Those are important and central Catholic beliefs, but that can easily be taken to the extreme of the bishop. It's not just that, you know, the Pope is ex- infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, but it's that the bishop is infallible when he tells you, you know, not to not to report your priest who's been abusing a child and that's where you need you need checks and you need truth telling and i think at its best catholic journalism can supply that within the church telling yeah telling sometimes hard truths that need to be told question du jour the benedict option disarming beauty you know kind of these would be two major kind of lights in this what next steps might you encourage people of faith to take to engage the wider world if that's even a recommended goal for these times? Well, I think it depends on the person. I'm resistant to the idea that we will come up with one model of Christian engagement, whether it's the Benedict Option or anything else. And I'm a, I'm a fan of Rod's book. I'm here at Notre Dame to talk about Father Caron's Disarming Beauty, which is an, a fine and beautiful book. Um, but I would just encourage people to recognize that any model is going to be somewhat insufficient, and everybody has to sort of approach things from where they find themselves. And the person who, you know, the Catholic politician has different obligations from the Catholic businessman who has different obligations from the Catholic parent. Um, and, you know, th- there, are, there are places 
where the church needs a Benedictine mode of spirituality, a sort of rebuilding of institutions, a formation of intentional communities. There are places, including probably in journalism, where the church needs a sort of vigorous and creative witness that assumes that actually the world might be open to Catholic ideas. And both both are possi- both are not just possibilities, both are necessities, depending upon where you are. So I think you know, we're in a strange and confused time in the Western world, and nobody's quite sure where we're going religiously, as with everything else. Um, and I think that these kind of books all offer important models for people to internalize and sometimes follow. But it's also important to recognize that what God is calling you to do may not fit perfectly with any particular model or may fit one model and not another and it may just depend on where you are and who your neighbors are and what your local parish is like and what you do for a living. Well, Ross Douthat of the New York Times, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Ross Douthat. His presentation at the Roundtable Discussion is on the Center's YouTube channel and linked in the show notes. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. Please rate us in your podcatcher, and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Thank you.